Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 29th. In today's news, a plane carrying as many as 240 American evacuees from Wuhan has landed in Alaska on its way to California. The Democratic establishment is going all in to stop Bernie Sanders in Iowa. And the federal budget deficit is set to reach alarming new heights this year. But first, the big idea. Congressional Republicans who have spent months disputing Democratic assertions that President Trump strong-armed Ukraine to help himself politically are pivoting hard to a new argument, that the president's actions are not impeachable, even if it turns out that he did leverage his office for an investigation of a domestic rival. The rapid moving of the goalposts has been startling, but perhaps unsurprising, after revelations that former National Security Advisor John Bolton is willing to testify under oath on the floor of the Senate that Trump directly linked delivering military aid for Ukraine with that government announcing investigations into Joe and Hunter Biden. They're latching on to an argument first made by Trump defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, who argued on the Senate floor Monday night that abuse of power is not an impeachable offense and that the president doesn't deserve to be removed even if he did everything he's accused of. The ramifications are striking and could have long-term implications. The argument suggests senators believe an American president can use taxpayer dollars to pressure or coerce an ally to investigate an American citizen who happens to be challenging him for president without any repercussions. Most Republicans have refused to say, publicly at least, whether they believe Trump's actions were appropriate. Indeed, some grow angry when reporters press them for answers. But the new talking point also stands in stark contrast to a key argument by Trump's most ardent defenders in Congress and his own legal team that a quid pro quo never happened. In fact, as recently as yesterday, Trump's defense team was calling into question the notion that the president pressured Ukraine for a probe at all. The diverging messages underscore the challenge Republicans face as they try to coalesce around an argument for why they don't want to hear from any witnesses who have firsthand information after the White House spent months stonewalling Congress and ignoring subpoenas. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated during a closed-door meeting with Senate Republicans last night that he does not have enough votes to defeat an effort expected on Friday to call additional witnesses and bring in more evidence to the trial. But the Kentucky Republican expressed hope that he can twist enough arms to prevent four Republicans from voting to hear Bolton speak. The idea of acknowledging a quid pro quo first surfaced in the Senate last fall, as more than a dozen current and former Trump administration officials gave sworn testimony to House impeachment investigators that they believed a White House meeting and $391 million in congressionally appropriated military assistance were being withheld in order to pressure Ukraine. Senator Ted Cruz told his colleagues during a private meeting in late October that by admitting the act occurred, Republicans could then argue that Trump didn't have criminal intent or perhaps that he even had a legitimate reason to ask for the probes. But Trump rejected such a strategy and, as he always does, denied everything, and he continues to call his July 25th phone call perfect. 
Now, however, the news that Bolton personally spoke with Trump about the intention to freeze military aid to coerce the Ukrainian government has upended the GOP line that there are no firsthand witnesses. Enter Dershowitz, a former friend of the late Jeffrey Epstein, who's represented, among others, O.J. Simpson. Dershowitz, now an emeritus law professor at Harvard, is not really a constitutional scholar. He's a criminal defense attorney to the stars. Frank Bowman, a University of Missouri law professor and the author of a book called High Crimes and Misdemeanors, said Dershowitz's view is out of step with every mainstream constitutional scholar and historian. Bauman said yesterday that Dershowitz is essentially alone. And he said what Dershowitz is doing is standing up and, quote, being a guy with Harvard attached to his name, spouting complete nonsense that's totally unsupported by any scholarship anywhere. Indeed, a statutory crime has never been required for impeachment, dating back to the 14th century, when the British Parliament invented the procedure as a mechanism for dealing with abuses of royal power. The American framers wrote high crimes and misdemeanors into our Constitution to include non-criminal abuses of power. And since then, federal judges and a U.S. senator have been impeached for non-criminal conduct. Nevertheless, Republicans are parroting Dershowitz's arguments that senators don't need to hear from witnesses because even if the reports are true, Trump can't be removed for those actions anyway. Today, after Trump's defense team wrapped up their arguments yesterday afternoon, the trial now moves to a question and answer phase. Senators can submit questions in writing to the lawyers for the prosecution or the defense. Chief Justice John Roberts said that he's going to ask the attorneys to keep their answers to five minutes apiece. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the total number of people in mainland China infected by the new coronavirus has already surpassed the number who were stricken by SARS during that epidemic in 2002, with no signs of abating. Beijing overnight has ordered all schools in the entire country of more than a billion people to be shut down until further notice. The World Health Organization says China has finally agreed to allow global health experts into the country. The U.S. has a CDC crisis team ready to deploy when the Chinese agree to accept them. The death toll has now risen in China to 132. That's confirmed dead, with 6,000 confirmed cases of infection. That's a day-to-day increase of more than 1,000. Other countries in the region are also reporting more people infected, nearly all of them tourists from China. North Korea is calling this fight against the coronavirus a matter of national existence amid fears that an outbreak would utterly destroy a country with rudimentary health infrastructure and an already malnourished population. The UAE has just reported its first cases, the first in the Middle East, a family of four that had been traveling in Wuhan. Germany reported three more cases. Thailand confirmed six more. Hong Kong reported two new cases. Australia reported two additional cases. And overnight, a plane carrying 240 American evacuees from Wuhan landed in American soil. The U.S. government chartered a private aircraft to retrieve American diplomats and others who were stranded in the central Chinese city that's at the heart of the outbreak. The plane made a refueling stop in Alaska, where passengers are now undergoing health screening, and then they'll head on to Southern California. Originally, this charter aircraft was going to land at the Ontario International Airport, but local officials freaked out. So now the plane is going to land at March Air Reserve Base in California's Riverside County. White House officials warned airline executives during an emergency meeting 
yesterday afternoon that the U.S. government may soon suspend all flights to and from China if the coronavirus outbreak becomes a bigger public health threat. White House officials say they're not banning flights just yet, but they say the U.S. government is assessing the situation daily, leaving open the possibility of a ban. Airlines in recent days have already canceled hundreds of flights scheduled from Wuhan, giving U.S. officials a brief respite as they focus on the logistics of rerouting all U.S.-bound travelers from the region to one of five airports for special screening. The travelers are now all being funneled into either Atlanta, Chicago, LAX, New York, or San Francisco. If cleared, they're then allowed to travel to their final destination. British Airways overnight indefinitely suspended all flights to Beijing and Shanghai. And back here in the States in Ohio, officials at Miami University in Oxford canceled two college basketball games after administrators announced two students who recently traveled to China are being tested for coronavirus. One of the students visited the campus health center Monday afternoon and exhibited flu-like symptoms, prompting staff to test him and his travel companion. The two students are now being held in isolation and are under guard at their off-campus residences while they await test results from the CDC. Experts still can't say whether efforts to limit the spread of the virus will succeed. Some early signs have been, frankly, discouraging. Six countries, including China, have confirmed human-to-human transmission of the infection. Those include the cases in Germany that were connected to a single person. That's a worrisome sign for containment. Also, we've now as learned, as I've said in recent days, 5 million residents of Wuhan, where the virus originated, have left the city. Obviously, many of them, or some of them, carrying the disease. Public health officials say they're grappling with a long list of unknowns that will determine how successful they are in limiting the toll. Those questions include how lethal the virus may be, how contagious it really is, whether it's transmitted by people who are infected but show no symptoms, and whether it can be contained in its country of origin. But here is a glimmer of hope. Researchers in Melbourne, Australia, announced while you were sleeping that they've grown the coronavirus successfully from a patient sample. This potentially paves the way for more scientific breakthroughs. They hope the sample, which they say they'll share with laboratories around the world, including here in the U.S., will help speed up efforts to develop a vaccine and to diagnose the virus in people without symptoms. China's also handed over the genome of the coronavirus to the Russians in a joint effort between those two countries to try to create a vaccine. Number two, a super PAC aligned with the Democratic establishment is launching a $680,000 ad buy today to attack Bernie Sanders during the five days left until the Iowa caucuses. Among other things, the commercial highlights the heart attack that Sanders had last year. Featuring six Iowa voters speaking to camera, the ad argues that Sanders can't defeat Trump in November and says that his embrace of democratic socialism is evidence that he would be, quote, too risky. The amount of money, $680,000, goes a long way in Cedar Rapids and Des Moines media markets. Sanders takes this 11th hour deluge seriously enough that he tweeted a straight to camera response last night. He says, the billionaire class is getting nervous, and they should be. Joe Biden, meanwhile, is under fire in Iowa because he refused to say yesterday afternoon whether he thinks Sanders could unify the party if he wins the nomination. He said he's not going to make any judgments now. Under pressure, the Biden campaign put out a statement last night saying that the former vice president would support Sanders if he wins the nomination. And Biden's team also getting scrutiny for reportedly pitching Amy Klobuchar's advisors on a possible alliance during the caucuses. But the Klobuchar team is dismissing their offer as not serious. 
The plan would have involved a pledge to help each other in precincts where one of them doesn't meet the threshold of 15%, which is what's required at the caucuses to win delegates. People in both campaigns played down the conversations after word leaked to the New York Times. Number three, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office released its official 2020 outlook yesterday afternoon, and it shows that the federal budget deficit is going to eclipse $1 trillion this year. The number of crunchers who wear the green eyeshades say the 13-figure shortfall is largely due to those fiscally irresponsible tax cuts from 2017. A combination of the Trump tax cuts, which disproportionately benefited the richest 1%, including the president, as well as Wall Street banks and mega corporations, combined with a surge in new profligate spending, has pushed the deficit to dangerously unsustainable levels. This will be the first time since 2012, when we were still recovering from the Great Recession, that the deficit breaches $1 trillion. It's a threshold that alarms budget experts because deficits historically are supposed to contract, not expand, during periods of sustained economic growth. If the deficit is as bad as it is now, imagine how much worse it's going to be when we slip into recession and tax revenues fall while demands for stimulus and additional spending grow. Overall, the CBO projects that the federal government is going to spend $4.6 trillion in this fiscal year, which ends September 30th, but bring in only $3.6 trillion. This got almost no attention yesterday, but I want to flag it here for you at the end because trillion-dollar deficits ultimately pose a much greater threat to the long-term health of the United States than the coronavirus does. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, January 29th. Thank you so much for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.